This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Sheila Hetty read her story, Just a Little Fever, from the April 18, 2022 issue of the magazine. Hetty is a Canadian writer whose books of fiction and nonfiction include the novels How Should a Person Be, Motherhood, which was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and Pure Color, which was published earlier this year. Now here's Sheila Hetty. Just a Little Fever. She was shampooing her hair with cherries. It was entirely her idea to do it. She hadn't read about it anywhere. She had taken the little cellophane sack of cherries out of her bag and put the cherries in a wooden bowl and pounded them down with a flat, broad spoon, drawing out the pits with her fingers. Then she had slipped into the shower and put the whole mess on her head and shampooed it in with a little bit of moisture. This was her way of treating herself, since only the moon seemed to be on her side, shining down silver on her coat that night. After she rinsed out her hair, it was pink and smelled like cherries. She went to bed with it wet like that, and when she woke up, it looked like her head had bled in the night. She put the pillowcase in the sink with a bit of soap and left for her day in the world, the sun shining down on her, creating a golden armor that coated her body entirely. When she got to work, There was Marla, there was Agnes, and there was Junie. They had already taken their spots as tellers and were standing and serving customers, and she went to her spot and put away the sign that said, Next Teller, and served the first person who stepped up to her station. He was an old but handsome man. He had white hair and was dressed in a very nice suit. It wasn't that he looked rich. He just looked like someone who took care to dress nicely for the world. She liked that. She had never seen him before. "'What is your name, dear?' he asked carefully, pulling out his wallet and putting it down on the counter. "'Angela,' she said. "'Angela, my name is Thomas.' He handed over his bank card. "'Could I please have $300 in cash from my savings account?' She rolled her eyes slightly, but as soon as she did, she regretted it. She liked the man, and even if this was something that could have been done at the ATM, she shouldn't have rolled her eyes." She was simply so used to disliking her customers, and she immediately apologized. I'm sorry I rolled my eyes. It's just habit. A lot of things are habit, he agreed, and didn't seem offended. I have lots of bad habits, she said. I do, too. It takes a lifetime to get rid of them, and even then that is not enough time. As she counted out his money, she asked, What habits have you overcome, and which do you still have? I no longer smoke or drink, but I tell little white lies. In fact, I do smoke and drink sometimes. No, I guess I haven't overcome any. I forget to exercise, and I eat junk food all the time. It doesn't matter, he said. Your body knows what it needs better than you do, better than all the magazines do, better than the doctors do, better than your girlfriends do. You just keep eating your junk food and lazing around. Thank you, she said. No one has ever said that. You do whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't, does it? I like the color of your hair, he said. Thank you, she said. You can't tell because of the barrier, but it smells like cherries. I can smell them, he said. Then he put the $300 bills in his wallet and said good day and walked away. 
She went on to serve the next person, and the next, and the next. But there was a problem. Even by the end of the day, she was still thinking about Thomas. She liked the fact that he had not said that she should exercise or eat better, and she liked that he had not flirted with her, except for calling her dear. But that wasn't flirting. He was just calling her dear to be nice. Then he had left. He dressed beautifully and was handsome. It didn't matter that he was old. Old was as good as young. It wasn't that she was looking for a boyfriend, a father, or a grandfather. She just couldn't help thinking about him. At first, she despaired, because how would she ever meet him again? But then she just went back to the first transaction of the day and found his name, Thomas Swisher, and his telephone number. And once Marla and Agnes and Junie had left, she called him on the little black telephone that was at her station, and he picked up. Is this the bank, he asked, because obviously the telephone had told him so. Yes, this is Angela. I helped you this morning. I was your teller. I remember. I was wondering if you would like to have dinner with me tonight. He hesitated on the other end, and she imagined what he was thinking. Probably he was wondering whether it was a good idea, or if she was crazy. Well, all right, he said, a little reluctantly. Do you have something else to do? she asked. No, he said. Where would you like to go? She gave him the name of a restaurant, and they agreed to meet in half an hour, to give him time to fix his hair and to give her time to close up. Then they met. They were sitting across from each other in a dim red room, and waiters were walking about in soft shoes, carrying things on trays in their careful and deliberate ways. She liked the candlelight. She liked the spaghetti carbonara, and she liked Thomas, whom she had started calling Tom. He didn't seem charmed by her, though, and remained as uneasy as he had been on the phone. You like old men? he finally asked. It was the question that had been plaguing him. Not more than I like young men. Lots of people don't like old men. They think that we're disgusting, old-fashioned, out of date, that our values are not contemporary, and that there's something wrong with our bodies. I don't think that, she said. He nodded but was not reassured. Is this a date, he asked. She admitted that it probably was. She said, I liked that you didn't say that I should start exercising and eating right, and I also liked your suit, and your white hair is so nice and fluffy like a little Persian cat. Thank you, he said. He had been complimented in this way before. Lots of women liked him. Angela wasn't the only one. He said, Can I call you Pearl? That was my wife's name. I still miss her, and I find if I can call a woman Pearl, then my feelings open up to her a lot quicker. Sure, she said, and then she realized that she liked the name Pearl better than Angela, for Angela was the name of a fish. That is, she had once met a fish named Angela when she was little, maybe three or four years old, and she had never stopped feeling that Angela was the name of a fish. Thank you, Pearl, he said, and a little smile came over his face, and then a smile came over her face, and they started to like each other equally. When the waiter came to their table, she saw a beautiful older man with an ordinary-looking woman who was probably around 30, and when he left, Thomas, who had seen the waiter's look, asked her, How old are you anyway? I'm 31, she said, and I've never been married, and I've never had any children. Why not? I don't like a lot of men. They seem so picky. That's true. They are. Do you have a lot of girlfriends, then? Some. Would you like me to be one of them? All right, he said, but don't ask me to be exclusive. 
I'm seeing a few other women right now, and I don't want to choose. It must be very hard to choose. How does one choose anyway? Each woman is so different, and each has her good qualities, and each has her bad, and there can be so many kinds of beauty. Not to say I'm beautiful, I know I'm not, but I think I dress well, and I appreciate how other people dress. She was wearing a loose purple blouse that didn't flatter her. All right, he said, let's go. The next morning she woke up and remembered her date with Tom. He had been one of the more interesting men she'd gone out with, mainly because he didn't seem to want anything from her. But was that a reason to think someone was a good person, or to find a man interesting, just because he wasn't salivating all over you? Yes, she decided. It gave a man a certain mystique. Of course, she was used to it. Most men her age weren't salivating all over her either, but they did seem to have a kind of urgency in their blood, which she found off-putting, she now realized. And she was in the mood for a more patient, more settled kind of person, someone who didn't give her a jumpy feeling. Actually, everyone her age gave her a jumpy feeling. All of them were trying to figure out their lives. All of them were failing at it. All of them were aware that they were failing and had the feeling that if they didn't secure a good life for themselves first, someone else might jump in and secure that good life for themselves and they would forever be left with nothing. This was how they all behaved, like there was very little good left for any of them. So she saw the benefits of spending time with Tom, who had already settled a good enough life, and wasn't jumpy, and wasn't desperately looking for its parts, and evaluating her, and asking himself whether she was one of those parts, and whether she was a central one. It would be good to spend time with him. He would be a good influence. She looked in the mirror and saw that her face was flushed beautifully. She took this to mean she was falling in love. That night after work, she met him again, but this time at a lamp post, and they walked toward the same restaurant. Then they went into the one next door. It was a Korean place. She loved the little side dishes. She always felt she was getting more than her money's worth. He told her that he was not a rich man, so she offered to pay, to show him that she was not after his money. I have enough money to pay for this dinner, he said. But she brushed this off, saying, Tell me what you do, anyway. I owned a rug store. Now my son owns it. What's your son's name? Thomas. I never understood naming a child after yourself. A person without children couldn't possibly understand. Naturally, she was curious to meet Tom Jr. and asked if it would be possible. And ten days later, the three of them were sitting on a wooden bench in the park. It was chilly. She was wearing pantyhose, and the little half-shaved hairs were sticking painfully through her hose, but she felt that probably the men couldn't see this. The wind was blowing terribly. It blew Thomas's hat off his head, and Tom Jr. went running for it. She liked the way he looked when he was running, and she suddenly wondered if it wouldn't make more sense to be with Tom Jr., who was closer to her age, and who'd be more acceptable for her to date. Tom Jr. looked like his father, but probably also like his mother. His face was wider than Thomas's, and his neck was longer and thinner. He didn't have his father's clear eyes, and he had a sour expression, whereas his father's expression was very calm and bright. Tom Jr., on the other hand, looked like someone with a chip on his shoulder. But he was more sexy for being young. She couldn't help feeling this way. When he returned with his father's hat, he gave Angela a sly and hungry look. It's not every day that my father appears with a young woman on his arm, he said. Angela didn't like this. 
She wasn't on his arm, and she very quickly decided that she liked the father better than the son. It was true that each generation was worse than the one that came before, that every generation since the fall had lost something of humanity's initial purity, beauty, and nearness to God. This was abundantly clear in the case of the two Toms. She said in a prudish way, I am not on his arm, and I wouldn't expect him to appear with a young woman every day, and even if he did, I certainly shouldn't think it would be your place to tell me. Now she sat back, and Tom Jr. gave her a dull and hateful look. Tom Sr. didn't seem to care. He seemed very relaxed about his son's behavior, not thinking it reflected on him in any way, as if the boy were not his own son but a stranger. Angela took this as a sign that Thomas felt she could take care of herself, and she liked this. It was like the exercise thing. She was fine, was his fundamental feeling about her, and she could feel it. He wasn't worried about her, and this made her not so worried about herself either. If he wasn't worried, perhaps there was nothing to worry over. She and the father left the park and went into a nearby cafe, where it wasn't so windy, while Tom Jr. went back to work. So, Thomas said, as they settled themselves in a corner booth with two coffees, have you decided upon meeting my son that you still prefer me? It was wise of you to get that out of the way. I do prefer you, she said. Your son has none of your manners or grace or the very calmness I appreciate about you. No, he does not, the father said. I don't like to say it, but he's a bit of a disappointment. I named him after myself, hoping he would take on some of my qualities, but he's like his mother all the way. Pearl? Yes, but it was nice on Pearl. It was earned. She had a hard life. She had a right to be how she was. Tom Jr. has had an easy life. He just adopted her mannerisms. His attitude has no basis. It's based in nothing. It is just imitation. And anything that is imitation, or based in imitation, is bound to be repellent. People who are themselves are nice to be around, even if they are sour, like Pearl was. How do you know Pearl wasn't imitating? He refused to answer, because Pearl was the woman he had loved more than anyone in the world, and he wasn't about to give away all that he knew about her. He knew things about her that he would never tell Angela. And, in fact, he reconsidered in that moment calling Angela Pearl, feeling for the first time that it was inappropriate, even if it helped him open his heart. It's not that Pearl would have minded. It was something else. I'm going to call you Angela from now on. She felt they were taking things to the next level. The fact was, she'd been in a rush her entire life, and she never knew why. She just always wanted to get everything over with as soon as possible, even things she was enjoying. She was always racing for the end of the story. She always wanted to get started on the next thing. It wasn't any pleasure for her to be in the middle of something, even though when other people were in the middle of something, she always envied them. But she envied them in part because she couldn't be in the middle. She always had to be at the end, or telling herself that she was nearing the end, in order to bear anything, eating, work, and any kind of relationship. But it was different with Tom. She actually wasn't racing to the end of their nights together, their lovemaking, their conversations. She was happy to be in the middle, and wasn't looking forward to things ending. She wasn't looking around the corner to see what was coming next. This perhaps had to do with Thomas's satisfaction with himself, his life, and by extension, her. She began to think that maybe she was always racing for the end 
because she didn't really like herself, that racing toward the end was a way of not staying with herself long enough in any situation to see who she really was. It was as if she needed to rush past herself and her personality, as if she both was on a train looking at the landscape and was the landscape. She wanted to be rushing past the landscape of her own self, maybe because she couldn't bear to look at it, for fear of what she would see. And yet, here was Thomas, and he was quite content to look at her in his placid way, without any real judgment. So maybe she was okay. Whereas people her own age were just like her, also always rushing, as if they couldn't bear to look at themselves, or at one another, or at their own lives. Why had it taken being with this old man to see it? Perhaps it was because he was from a different generation, so she could see what never would have been clear with someone of her own generation, where there wasn't the contrast. But when she put this theory to him, he said, It has nothing to do with my age. What you're seeing is just me, and it is the way I've always been. He could tell that she didn't quite believe him, so that's when he invited her to a party at his house, where there were going to be lots of people from his generation, women and men. She could see for herself. At that interesting party, there were 17 old men and women, all of whom had been friends with each other for at least 40 years. These were people who had known each other when they were still young, who had known each other all their lives. Most of them remembered Pearl. They were lively, like Angela's own friends, playing the piano, laughing too loudly, telling long and boring stories, eating the food with terrible manners and dressed all sloppily. Some tried to look nice but still didn't know how to put together an outfit, even at their age. Meanwhile, Thomas was looking upon the whole scene with his usual forbearance, and she saw that it really was him, not his age but his self, that made her feel like slowing down, like being comfortably in the middle of things. The next morning, amid the mess of the party, the bottles, the cigarettes, the rumpled rug, she apologized to him. As with meeting his son, another hurdle of understanding had been passed. He had, in his calm way, let her see the truth about himself by situating himself among other people. Most people would not have had the confidence to do this, but Thomas did, and this was part of the reason she loved him. Yes, she did, she loved him. But, unfortunately, she was not the only one, and it was hard to forget it. At the party, there had been two of his girlfriends, Lolly and Serena. And although both of them were his age, this fact made her even more jealous. They had something to offer him. They could look straight into his eyes, as it were. Whereas she, she felt, was smaller and lesser than them, having lived so many fewer years. They had maybe thirty or fifty years on her. She didn't dare ask. So they were coming from a place similar to Thomas, and Angela knew coming from a similar place was one of the ingredients of love, often. She could never offer Thomas that. Some may have thought, well, I have my youthful body to offer. But the way Thomas looked at her was never with an evaluating eye. She had no idea what he thought of her body. She wouldn't have been surprised to learn that he thought nothing about it at all. In any case, she felt very jealous of Serena and Lolly, especially because they were sitting there so much of the night, laughing together and getting drunk. And even though when Thomas introduced her to them, they were very eager with all their questions and invited her in their grown-up way to sit down, she had been uneasy and, with her own youthful and inferior feelings, made an excuse and shifted away 
and stayed on the other side of the room, eating grapes and shrimp the rest of the night. So, while Thomas had shown himself to be all she had hoped for in the context of a party, she had failed. Not him, not herself, but some grander calculus that should have put her in the lead. She had done no favors to her generation by acting so small. She didn't tell any of her friends about the party, and anyway, she didn't like to talk much about Tom, because she knew that they judged her. She suspected they judged her as being too ugly to get a guy her age. Which is what they would think, because they were idiots, she now saw. But it was too late to get new friends. Or was it? A few nights later, in bed, she asked Thomas, Do you think it's fair to get a whole new set of friends? I don't understand the question, he said. Sorry, I just mean, do I have to keep being friends with my friends simply because I've been friends with them? He thought about it for a moment. I don't think so, he said, but he didn't seem convinced. You want to get rid of all your friends? He wasn't criticizing, he was just curious. Theoretically, if I wanted to, is there some sort of time limit? Like, if you've been friends with someone since college, do you have to keep being friends with them when you're 31? I've never heard of that, he said carefully. Never mind, she said. She suddenly saw that she was not going to get rid of her friends, even if she wanted to. She just wouldn't have had the courage. She would simply have to hide her life from them. After they made love again, Angelo went downstairs to look for his cat, Lucy. Lucy was sitting on the arm of the gray couch, and it watched her as she approached. The cat seemed to back up without moving. Hi, Lucy, she said, slowly moving closer, hoping the cat would confirm that she was a good person. But the cat made a sudden decision and leaped from the couch's arm. The next day, back at work, Agnes, Marla, and Junie stood around the coffee maker with Angela. The day hadn't started yet. It wouldn't start for another ten minutes, and they were all having their morning chat. They were talking about their romantic lives. Agnes was planning her wedding, Junie had just broken up with someone, and Marla was single as usual. Angela decided to tell them that she was dating one of the bank's customers, a Mr. Thomas Swisher. Did any of them know him? If they didn't know him, she told herself, don't assume he's a ghost. I do, Agnes said. He's a very nice and dapper man. Anyway, he's my boyfriend, but he has two other girlfriends as well. Agnes made a disapproving face. I knew you'd disapprove, said Angela, and that's why I waited so long to tell you. She realized that she had said this last thing with a shout. How long have you been seeing him for? Agnes asked. A month. A month is not a very long time, said Marla, who was a bit jealous. A month is longer than she usually dates someone for, Junie pointed out. Then it was time to get to their stations, and that was the end of the conversation, and Thomas Swisher was never again discussed at work. Angela didn't bring him up because the conversation had upset her. Agnes, because if she brought him up, she knew she'd have to disapprove, and this would cause a rift. Marla, because she didn't like thinking about anybody having a good time with a man. Junie, because she forgot. The next day, Thomas came in, and although Angela was working, her three friends were not. Instead, her co-workers were an older woman and two men, none of whom knew about their relationship. Thomas said, I've come to close my account, okay? Angela treated him very professionally. In the bank's script, tellers were supposed to ask why, 
but she wasn't sure he would know that she was saying lines from a script, so she skipped all the questions and just made him sign the papers and gave him his remaining cash, $600, and treated him as she would have a complete stranger, and he treated her like he had never seen her before either. She didn't know if this was his way of breaking up with her or not, but it was not, for that night he called her, and they went out to dinner, and she was so relieved and happy that she just laughed and squirmed in her chair as though she were being newly born into love. Why are you acting so strangely, he asked. I thought you broke up with me today. He frowned. He didn't like being misunderstood. No. So, exactly, she said, and smiled and giggled the rest of the night. The next day, she woke up with a bit of a fever. She'd been seeing him too often, dining out too much, drinking and smoking, worrying and letting her emotions go all sorts of places, and she felt repulsed with herself and repulsed with how she had been living. What was she doing, dating such an old man, even if he made her happy? Was she really setting herself up for a whole life of happiness this way? She felt impatient with herself and compared herself with her friends who, though anxious all the time, were at least putting the pieces in place for decades of happiness, while here she was, messing everything up by being drawn in by someone who didn't have decades to live, who had two other girlfriends, and who clearly didn't know how to act, or else he wouldn't have closed his bank account that way, or even closed it at all. She really hated Tom in his superior ways, and the way he brought his son and friends around to show off how much better he was than them. This was completely unbecoming and undignified, and she probably only thought he was dignified because he dressed so well. She then began to replay the whole affair, but with him wearing sneakers and a baseball cap and an ugly sweatshirt that he got for free in a gift bag and baggy jeans, and suddenly whatever beautiful qualities she had seen just blew right off him like dust off a horse, a horse running wildly from its stall. Who did he think he was, naming his son after himself, one of the most pompous things a human could do? Of course, Angela just had a fever. That's why she was feeling this way and was having all of these dark and negative thoughts. But in her typically rushed and hurried way, she took advantage of despising him to call him up and tell him that she thought it would be best if his only girlfriends were Lolly and whatever the other one's name was, and not herself. Thomas was genuinely disappointed. He liked her, and not only because he was a calm person who took everything as it was. There was something about her he truly liked. Could he say what it was? Not really. If she had asked him, would he have been able to come up with something convincing? Well, but she didn't ask him. She hung up the phone and felt a tremendous elation, a great happiness, and a total sense of her youth and freedom rushing through her again. She had gone through something and had come out the other end, and she was completely intact. None of it mattered anyway. He was just one man, some old man, someone she would never have to see again because he had closed his account. And she felt thankful and grateful and lucky. She had just a little fever for the next few days, but in the end she was completely fine. That was Sheila Hetty reading her story, Just a Little Fever. She's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 2015. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. 
On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Sherman Alexi reads Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>